everybody, and welcome back to the Upstream podcast. I've got as guest today, Kellen Ellen McRae from Adobe, uh, but from a long list of prior Etsy, Flickr, uh, all kinds of good stuff before that. And Adam Jacob, now the system initiative, but probably most famous, I think the way you put it in a recent talk was, come on, you all know me from Chef. And uh, the- Does that sound too egotistical? It's a little egotistical, no, right? No, I, I mean, listen- like you should I was know a... me. That's not like a thing I... that should happen. Anyway. I, well, I mean- When you can actually... know me, I'm nice or whatever, but- Well, you don't you don't bite too, too much, especially through, yeah. uh, through a microphone. What? Well, I mean- you know, one of the things that we can talk about today, what we do want to, what we want to talk about today is culture, tools, how openness threads through all that. One of the things that hadn't been on my agenda, but we should put a pin in it for later, is some of these cultures do create um, cultures where our rock stars are venerated in ways that maybe feels inappropriate, right? Oh, um, but let's put a pin in that one. I got, I I got start... a whole, I got a whole thing about that. So, oh, I, I, I we, we, yeah. I mean, we should, we should definitely then try to make sure we have some time for it. But I want to start with this moment. You know, Adam, you recently gave a talk where you talked about crisisunity, this idea that we're, especially in our field, there's constant sense of crisis, but also therefore a constant uh, set of opportunities. And Kellen, you've been writing recently in a way that really resonated for me about, I don't know if you'd call it a crisis exactly, but it, you've been writing about how a lot I of us think, feel. I think I would call it a crisis. I would call would it you? a crisis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, well, say a little bit about that. Sure, you know, and, and you know, I left Dropbox last June and I had some time and I, and I always kind of, when I have some time, I, I, like, to, I like to go ask people a question, you know, um, it's, 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 I don't know, maybe it's my introverted nature or somehow other socially awkward, but having a project makes it easier for me to catch up with people. And the, the question that was haunting me a little bit was this sense that everybody thought their engineering team sucked. You know, no one was impressed with how software was being built. And that was CEOs unimpressed with their software teams. It was senior engineers being unimpressed with their junior engineers. It was the sense of like, it's all gone to shit. And that was the feel, that was the vibe. You know, and digging in, it was really interesting to start pulling it apart because unsurprisingly, there was a lot of different stuff going on, but it was realizing that the stories we told ourselves about how software works and how software gets built had drifted um, and not by accident, you know, with a lot of pressure and input and money and, you know, all sorts of things, but had drifted from the way it was actually being built. And that disconnect, you know, that, that bifurcation, what we told ourselves and what we were doing was producing terrible results. I mean, terrible for the people, terrible for the businesses. I mean, just, you know, everybody was miserable. Totally. And so starting to try to figure out kind of where where the truth was in between those things. You know, how do we we bring what we are doing and what we are saying and what we are experiencing in line? And, and I do think it's a crisis. And I think it's partially a crisis because because of what's going on in the economy. We, we, we've been called to account for that breakdown. You know, we've we've taken... Oh boy, the lights are turning off in here. But sorry, um, we've we've taken <laughs> uh, 
we've taken this problem that was made people feel bad. And then we've like said, like, actually, this is a moral and business failing. And we will also fire you for it. Um, so, yeah, it's a crisis. Yeah. I, I, Adam, yeah, I mean, you've clearly got strong opinions on this. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, to me, I I didn't come at it the same way Kellen did, obviously. But um, but my observation is identical, I think, which is, you know, we there's always been this strain of of when you go out and talk to people um and help them build new things or help them try to like change how they work or change the tooling that they use or any of those things you always hear most of the time we're the worst people in the world our environment is the worst environment that's ever existed um we're not good at any of these things like there is really this and then there is a small number of people who have none of that and probably have like an undeserved amount of 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 pride in how great they are. Um, I experienced this with Facebook really directly. Like you go talk, like when I went to the Facebook folks, they were like, "No, we're great. We're we're the best. It's fine. We got it." <clears throat> and and you were like, "Oh, okay, great. Well, I think what if it was this way?" And they're like, "Yep, good idea. We recognize that that's good because we're the best." And then you would go to like Citibank, and they'd be like, "You know, well, we are Citibank, so that's." important and cool and we're like you know proud of being Citibank, and it's complicated and you can't just understand Citibank in a day and also like we kind of hate it and we're not that impressed by it <laughs> and like and we, and we don't love it and and i think the to me one of the things that i see as an outcome of that is that our aspirations the the things we wanted to see from from the changes that we made the technologies that we built to try to achieve those aspirations have failed to actually deliver on what we aspired to. And it wasn't because our intentions were bad, but as an example of this, you know, like I, the DevOps movement is very much a, a piece of me and like of my heart. And the number one thing we wanted was developers and engineers working together to deliver software easily and quickly. And what we wound up with was teams of people writing infrastructure as code that the developers ignored because the infrastructure as code is huge and complicated and messy and they don't understand it. And infrastructure as code people who don't understand the application. And then maybe they hang out around CD pipelines wondering why they take an hour and a half. And like, I don't think that's what we wanted. You know, it's certainly not what we told people was going to happen, but it is what happened and it is the outcome we're getting. And, and so we are dissatisfied with it sort of fundamentally because and, yeah, sorry, go. right absolutely and it's funny and you're talking about with the exception of facebook everyone feeling like we are the worst and it's we talked a little bit at the you know maybe as the pre-real the pre-roll about the generational change and like that is one of the generational changes because i remember a time and it wasn't that long yes. ago when everybody was just like tech is the shit our team is the sh like we are just amazing yeah everybody was really impressed with their software team again probably undeservedly then just as they are undeservedly or or somewhat deservedly yeah. uh, unhappy now um but we were making it, it up yeah, then yeah yeah and that's the difference yeah. right was that yeah. like like when 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 like when we had problems in the early internet no one had solved them like i remember building the first ISPs that were big enough that had hundreds of thousands of users. And you couldn't buy a book 
and be like, how do I build an ISP with hundreds of thousands of users? Like just how do I build a phone system that has a hundred thousand modems? Like that just wasn't a thing. And we figured it out. And then it was like, how do I run now? All these people are on the internet. How do I, how do I run a website that lets all the people show up all at once? And we're like, Ooh, load balancers, you know, like we, well, of course we were impressed. Like we, it was hard and we figured it out. And the other interesting thing about that is our solutions were largely worse than the solutions today. Yes. But because we invented them, there were two interesting aspects of that. One, we knew how they worked inside yep. and out. And two, because we had invented it, there was no one telling us we were doing it wrong. Wrong. That we were not meeting some professional standard that was outside of yourself. Yes. And, and, and yeah. yes, yes, Please, yes, no yes, a hundred percent. And, and that, and, and at the same time we were inventing the professional standard. Yeah. And so the, and there were people who told us we were doing it wrong. I remember. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember one of the, too, like, like one of the ISPs that I, that I worked for was owned by the power company in Arizona, weirdly enough. And it was because they had a private phone system that went to parts of Arizona that didn't have phones. And so we brought internet to places that didn't have phones, which is insane, but it's what happened. And like, Adam, I'm confused. How are phones and the internet related to each other? I know, right? I, exactly. <laughs> you can tell, you can't see me on the podcast, but I got a lot of gray in my beard and there's a reason. And like, <laughs> and I, and, and I remember the guys who ran the knock for the power company. And these are people who are responsible for like, you know, nuclear power generation, uh, the network being available, right? And they were pros and they were incredible at it. And they were like, you guys are doing it wrong. Everything about what we were doing, they were like, that's insane. Don't do that. And we were like, yeah, but we can't do what you do because it doesn't work for 100,000 people or 500,000 people. And they were like, yeah, I guess. And also still wrong. Um, I, let me I, let me jump in there because I want I think there's I'm seeing sort of like there's like three things that I, I mean, so one, the expectations are just different, right? Like, mm -hmm. as you know, Adam, as you're saying, like, there was a transition from the people running the phone service for the nuclear power plants. Uh, you know, I'm sure they had dozens of lines and thought that was like a big deal. It was a big and, deal. Right. And, right. Still right, a, big it was a big deal. Very hard. Uh, and, and But to do that for 100,000 or now, you know, as we all internet scale, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think the second thing is that, you know, hearing you two talk about, oh, well, we solve these things for ourselves. There's a certain simplicity, right? When you are building it from scratch and enforced simplicity of like, hey, we've only got so many people, so much time. And now, of course, we're all building on these castles. I mean, one of the things that jumped out at me about your essays, Kellen, was this notion of the complexity of not just what we're expected to do, but the complexity of the bottom up thing that we're managing, you know, Hello World is is 5,000 packages in any language that you want to talk about, right? And that the managing that level of complexity simultaneously empowers, but also I think both of you are, are pulling from different sides on the same string of like, we've made everything so complex that we are frustrated almost from go, right? Because it, it's, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Yeah, I... I mean, I'm, I'm always nervous about talking about how complex we've made it in, in that, like it is, 
I'm happy it, to talk about how complex we've made it, but I'll let you finish. <laughs> yeah. In the, in that, like, you know, my best example for this is like, is the, is the Ford model T. So the, if, if the three of us were locked in a room with the, all the parts required to construct a Ford model T and the rule was we couldn't leave until that car started, we would probably not die there. We would probably figure out how to do it. That was, it was simple. Also, uh, if you didn't know that when you turn the crank on a Ford model T that it often backfires. And so you need to make sure you don't grip the crank with your thumb. Um, it will break your arm some very high percentage of the time. Um, that was what the early internet was like. So was it simple? <laughs> yes. Um, but do you want one? No, not really. Like, like my, like I have an Audi in the garage and it has a little button and it says start and you hit it and the car starts and you drive away. And that's much better. Um, and in many but you'd ways, never be able to build that from scratch, but never, ever, we would die if we tried to build it from scratch, but is it, but the Audi is simpler than the Ford model T. Yeah. From the point of view of someone trying to do it, it's so much simpler. And then what we've, but the car itself infinitely more complicated um, in terms of how it's put together and what all the pieces are. The, the price of that simplicity to the user is a high degree of complexity for, for the builder. Um, and, and to me, I think the real challenge here isn't that we've added a bunch of unnecessary complication. I think in, in the most part, it was necessary to some degree. Um, but more that we have forgotten to tell each other that we made it up, that, that there's so much of it now that, that most, that there's a, there's too many people who look at that car and go, I could never build a car, you know? Um, I, I, though, what do you mean you would build a new operating system from scratch? That's insane. So complicated. And you're like, is it, is it really, I know it seems complicated, but it's actually not that complicated. Um, and, and it is hard. It's difficult. There's a lot of moving parts, but it is very doable. But but if you went out and just surveyed people and were like, do you think you could build an operating system? They're like, no. And if you go back in time to when we were just randomly building the internet, the number of people who would have been like, well, okay, was pretty high because we were watching Linux do it in real time. We were like, well, I mean, I remember when there wasn't a Linux and then there was, and you know, we built one and it worked and now it runs the world. And we were there. But if you come in later, right, you look at it and it's like, oh, that's so complicated. There's all this stuff inside of it. I can't understand it. And you're like, well, but you can, you just, but you have to be willing to, to, to go there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here, here's, here's, here, this was actually one of the really interesting things when I was talking to people is a lot of people started with complexity mm -hmm. and then what it became clear. And I don't even think we we've, we've identified all of it is that there was a lot of different complexities. Yes. And that part of what made it hard is that everyone wanted to say complexity. And then you're like, well, what complexity? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was the complexity of the expectations of, of the, you know, what does a great experience these days look like? It's the Audi versus the Ford. And sometimes it was the complexity of uh, the amount of things you had to know, the amount of choices that are available these days. You know, it was the, you know, it is, Vercel is simpler than Apache, but Apache was literally the only thing you had to learn for a decade. So like, you know, um, mm -hmm. where, you know. So trade-offs. 
trade off and and but also the 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 amount of choices you have to make just changes so mm -hmm. there's aspirations there's the rate of choices but then i also think there are the complexities that we did to ourselves and that was really interesting when we start digging into it so there's partially it's the aspirations hey you know great service systems are built in react you're like eh, eh, okay that's a lot of code that you're bringing in to do that marketing page um or that hello world um, but you're like, but this is normal. And, and this is your point, Adam, like, because so many people have entered this industry in the last 10 years, they don't have any of that. Like, I, I could do it my own way. I could do it something different. I, there's this sense that it, it comes as a, a sealed or fully integrated system that is correct. And I think that that may be the other thing that we lost a little bit along the way is this idea of like, ain't no, none of us know how to build this stuff. We're all making it up. We are not close to the sort of like, you know, the, the, the best, like this is not near the peak of software development practices yet. We're not close. Um, and then I think the other real complexity that, that we did to ourselves is the size of teams these days. It's not like there were never large software development teams. Goodbye, Adam. Well, maybe he'll come no. back by the time I stop uh, monologuing. Um, but uh, the, the size of, of software development teams these days just makes everything incredibly difficult. More people, more problems. Yeah, yeah. I don't um, for for those following along at home, we have we have lost uh, Adam's stream, but we will. Uh, I you know, uh, we'll we'll try to come back to Adam as soon as we can. But I, I you know, the thing, the boy, Volkswagen I, I really, group got him. He was talking know, about Audis, right? and they they just yeah. Um, we can uh, well, we can cut a little bit of this, but I'll, I'll tell you where I want to go next. And there, we have an Adam back. No, oh, I don't see an Adam yet. There he is. Woo. An Adam. Uh, and Margot got kicked out too, Adam. Uh, <laughs> but you you get to, you missed the tail end of a monologue from Kellen, but I, it was about team complexity. Kellen, I a so thing I'm I'm hearing from both of you is around this sort of you mentioned it earlier, Kellen, generational change. I want to shift gears a tiny little bit, though I think it very much comes back together. Um, something that both of you have been identified with in your career, and it wasn't something until I was sort of doing the research for this, uh, is empathy in our, in our human systems, mm -hmm. right? Where we did not, I think it's fair to say that when the three of us came into the industry, because we're all of sort of that similar generation, uh, empathy was not a thing at least, at the least, it wasn't an express value that we talked no. about in our human systems, right? Yeah, like it may have. It, I mean, it happened. I know I had many empathetic conversations with coworkers at that time. Absolutely, but it wasn't something that we were like explicit. Like, hey, you should be empathetic. Like, it sort of happened incidentally, right? Mm -hmm. And both of you, in different ways, have talked about that. Uh, you know, Adam, for you with HugOps, and and Kellen, uh, you're highly associated with. Um, the blameless postmortems movement in this space. What do you think? I mean, do we need, I mean, in some ways, literally those are some of the most successful cultural change movements we've had in this space over the past 15, 20 years, I think, right? I don't think it's just puffing you up to say that. I think those are real deep changes in our culture. Kudos. Well, well, um, we didn't, we didn't create them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. We I mean, take, like, you were and we certainly weren't alone. Well, <laughs> yeah. there's no, I mean, the most successful cultural change movements, it's never one person. Yeah, yeah, right? of course. That's why they're a movement and not just a thing. But I'm just, yeah. exactly. I just wanted, I just yeah, wanted yeah, to point yeah. out that neither yep. neither I nor oh. Kellen, I think, were the inventors of those things. We did, we do talk about them a lot and believe in them deeply. 
but yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, thank shepherds. you for clarifying. Mere, for mere, merely not... shepherds, indeed. Right, yes. uh, and I think, and and there's something to that that I think is very important, especially in this moment, right, of crisis and complexity. Like, do we need even more of that, or are there is there a different set of cultural? rules and needs that we have right now in this moment right yeah. i mean what i think there's sort of i feel like there's a couple different vectors like we could go down and maybe we should explore all of them but you know one of them is the we know what makes for high performing teams and you know kellen said this earlier that like people are unimpressed with their engineering teams and i've i've done a ton of thinking about this myself because i like i run a company and i want to be, I want to be great. I don't just want to be, I already know that I could build a thing that was, that was really great, but I, I, I can be better. You know what I mean? Like, like I want to be, I want to be really, really good at it. And I think there's so much evidence, um, like between sociological studies and, and just anecdotal evidence in your life about what makes high performing teams be high performing. Um, and it does tend to start with, with things like trust and, and safety and, uh, and alignment and autonomy. And, you know, you can kind of come down this list and, and when those things exist, teams, teams can perform. Um, and I feel like a lot of what has happened for us has been that we've also decided that software was a factory. Um, and yeah. that, and that the goal of that because it's a factory, our goal is the optimization of the factory floor. So this is like uh, like the goal, Goldratt's book, which is amazing and everyone should read it. And also I think it leads us to a bad destination in many ways. And, and the reason is because it's not, if you look at the truly high-performing software teams, they didn't work like factories. They worked like sports teams. They worked like athletes. They were, they, these were, these were, highly trained people working hard at their craft who were building good practices for themselves. They were learning how to spread those practices with each other. They were trying hard every day. Sometimes they failed other days. They had great days and were wildly successful. They learned from their mistakes. They became closer together. They worked harder together and they, and the score took care of itself. And instead we've decided that what we're really doing is trying to optimize this factory for consistent delivery. We've said, what makes a good team isn't that they're continually getting better and, and winning more often than they lose. Instead, it's the lack of loss. We're saying high-performing teams are teams that never lose. And, and they never lose because they, they deliver everything they say they'll do in the time frame they say they'll do it, in the way they say they'll do it. And by setting, because that's what makes an efficient factory, right? Uh, if we produce a hundred widgets at a time and the hundred widgets come out at a constant rate and the factory never breaks, then that, that is a good and efficient factory. And, um, and that's not actually how software gets built. It's not how teams work. It's not what makes them perform the best. It's, it's none of those things. Um, and, and we've just misapplied those techniques to our domain, to our detriment. I'm going to yes and you, Adam. So Please I do. totally agree. I've uh, I've always loved the sports team analogy. I also like the idea of an orchestra. I think that exactly yes. what you say. You know, there this software is this collective creative enterprise. Um, and you're absolutely right. The thing that makes great teams are 
the fact that they are a team and they are a healthy team and there's safety and people are watching out for each other and they are interacting and engaging and, and improving their craft. I think all those things are, are really true. I think that there's an interesting, some interesting other elements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've known this for a long time. I mean, uh, and our industry like has a slavish devotion to being like, well, if Google did it, it must be right. Yeah, yeah. And yet somehow even Google like research of, hey, it's about high trust teams. They can't even follow their own research, much less the rest of us following it. And so like, why is that? Like what's going on there? And there's a few things I think going on. And, and the first thing is I think, you know, to your question, you know, Lewis is about like, is there enough empathy? I think we've, we've hit a barrier on empathy in a couple of interesting ways. And one of the real barriers is I just don't think it's natural for most people to think about the team versus the individual. Totally. And Software is just not built by individuals anymore. It is not the nature of the domain. This is one of the things. It, that I don't think changed. it ever was. Yeah, Solomon. No, no, I don't think no. so. I don't think so. Yeah, I think, but I, I, but I think yeah. even. Well, less I mean, true. we we did like to pretend that it was. Right? We absolutely pretended it was. It, it is even less true though, because I mean, I remember an era where you put your headphones on and you typed code. And mm-hmm. like a month later, you checked it into RCS and like, totally. it was a little bit like building software by yourself. Um, a little. And it's so different than what we do now where you're actually like, it's an orchestra and everyone has to be playing in time or it just sounds awful. Yes. So I think that that's one of the real challenges is like, there is a whole hurdle where absolutely set of people like, I don't know if it's inherent human nature or if it's just capitalism has broken us or like something, but like we think of ourselves as individuals or it's just being Americans. I don't know. Um, So I think that that's one of the challenges. I think the other interesting challenge, and you said something about it, Adam, and I've already lost it. But one of the other pieces of this is we say, okay, so like we, we have a tendency to blame this breakdown on on the bosses or on the leads but like there's also parts of this breakdown that comes from the bottoms up totally you know part of that breakdown in empathy is also the empathy has to go both ways like there has to be there has to be trust in leadership and management and like this job sucks and no one cares about my feelings because well you know i'm paid a lot more than you so but like i get it but like that's part of it it's it's very easy to see on twitter yeah with people how they feel about venture capitalists yeah like it's the easiest thing in the universe to just be like fuck a venture capitalist and all they do is fuck the whole world up while you're talking yeah. while you're just covered in venture capital gear you know what i mean yep. anyway keep going and then the other piece of it that i think is interesting and i'm still there's there was going to be at least a fourth installment of my series and i kind of petered out because i'm not entirely sure how i want to write this one of the other things that changed in this process is that it wasn't just the bosses, the CEOs who thought software was easy, somehow the narrative that software is easy got into the mainstream. The idea that this should be an easy, mm-hmm. low-key job where we go to the gym and eat yogurt parfait. And the idea that work should never be uncomfortable, that hard yeah. things should never be uncomfortable, that growth should never be uncomfortable has also landed in this. And so it's hard to know, is there another step of empathy? Because, I mean, the idea that you know, that empathy movement was partially away from like the bastard operator from hell moment where like right. work sucked all the time and people screamed at you and, and empathy was a really important tool there. 
that is not the operating environment right now for no. most people in software, even while it is still toxic. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because the the there's something inside there about the fact that like when we're building these teams and we're thinking about 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 why these things matter, it it just like with the tooling or anything else, people actually don't really know why we do those things. Yeah. So like we don't Great. like like we didn't give you yogurt parfait for free because yogurt parfait was better it, on some on some like in, in some like platonic form kind of way. It's not like there was it, we did it because the people who were doing the work had to commute to these huge offices so that the orchestra could be conducted together. And that commute often started too early to have breakfast. And so if we put breakfast at the place where you went to work, then it was easier to get there. And then if people didn't have breakfast, then the five hours of meetings they needed to do to conduct the orchestra correctly didn't work as well because they were all grumpy and tired because if you don't eat breakfast, you're grumpy and tired. So so we put breakfast there. But what, and most people didn't think about it that way. They just thought about it as, oh, the perk was I got breakfast. And so, and so now you come in and like the expectation is breakfast and you're like, but no, 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 wait a second. We were doing breakfast because breakfast was the thing we needed to have in order to get to the outcomes we desired. And therefore breakfast is a good thing for the business. Um, but there's nothing inherent about delivering breakfast to software developers, right? It's not like software development requires free breakfast. That's insane. Um, and there's definitely a little of the of that happening where people are like, oh no, obviously as a software developer, I'm entitled to free breakfast. And you're like, wait, no, why? Like maybe, but I, I, I love the fact that you drew the parallelism with the technical stuff. People don't understand why we made the technical choices and they don't understand why we serve breakfast. It's, it's the exact, exactly it's, it. it's, it's the yeah. exact same thing. And there are people who remember because we decided we should put breakfast in the office. Yeah. And we were like, oh, why is that hard? We're like, well, because we have 20,000 people who commute to the campus every day. And, you know, it's, it's like, why was there, that, not to lean too much on Facebook, but it blew my mind. Like, they had a really good Mexican restaurant at the campus in Facebook. And it was just there. And there was, like, good coffee across the little way from it. And there was, like, a little golden path with, the like, a Wizard of Oz kind of thing in the middle of it. It was fucking That's nuts. That's a little on the nose. I know the <laughs> wicked witch was dead. It was crazy, right? But, but like it was awesome, and you like it made you want to hang out there. And the reason that was true is because there were like a lot of people there. <laughs> you know, like it wasn't like it wasn't like a couple people. It was like a lot of people, and and we all had to be there. And so we better give them something to do because otherwise they're in this like soulless hellscape. And that's no fun. And that makes the teams not perform well. And people don't and like to be in solo's hellscapes and blah, 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 blah. But like, it's the same problem, which is once, once it's become a rule, the rule is as a high valued software developer, I get breakfast. Now, so I think, yeah. So I think the other interesting place where it has started to break down again, this is the stuff that I was going to write in the fourth installment and just like, this feels insensitive at the moment. So the yeah, other so you thing should definitely say it on a podcast. Don't worry. So definitely say no it on one's going to listen. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's definitely um, better if you say the insensitive thing out loud, Kellen. I, I try. I try. 
<laughs> um, so the other reason, the other thing that worked when we were building, leaning into empathy and leading into high trust, values aligned teams is we had relationships with those people. It, yes. They lasted. And so the mm -hmm. other thing that changed in the last 10 years was in San Francisco, average tenure for a software engineer was 18 months. Right. And again, this is not a thing that can be solved top down. Like, like you know, we had all of these practices that were predicated on the idea that we were building a team that learned to play together over many years and got better over time. And then we removed the idea that we were actually going to have that time to get better together. Because they were factories. Yeah. Why do I care if well, someone leaves yep. in 18 months? I can replace them. It's a factory. Yep, absolutely. Well, or, yeah. or I mean, and I am I a cog or I am a cog in a factory. Therefore, I should just move to the highest paying factory, which good on you. Get paid. I'm not I'm not arguing. Don't get paid. Definitely get paid. Get the money. Get paid. But like, yep. like, like, but like, yeah. uh, but it's because we don't actually treat each other like the highly skilled uh, uh, professionals that we actually are. And we definitely don't manage and train to them. And so the tenure is lower. And the tenure I mean, is lower, which makes it harder, which pushes us towards. And again, we don't ever go back and be like, OK, so why do we do blameless postmortems? You know, right. Or, or do people now doing lots of people I've seen do blameless postmortems where they're doing the rituals of blameless postmortems and blaming yep. the crap out of each other because yep. because the the shape of blameless postmortem has sunk into the zeitgeist. That is that is the way and, we run postmortems. Yeah. And then none of that benefit of building trust and learning in the feedback cycle ever arrives. Yeah, this is why people don't like Scrum. If yeah. if we were the guys who well, invented Scrum is just bad. I but... know, but if it wouldn't have been bad if we were the people who invented Scrum. I bet when Fair you enough. do Scrum with those guys, it's a delight. Yeah. I bet Scrum's the greatest thing you've ever done when you do it with the dudes who wrote the Scrum manifesto. I bet it's incredible. <laughs> But like, that's not what we had. We had the no. like eighth order effects of Scrum that were like, hmm, only the product owner can run, you know? They're like, ah. Oh, oh man. I mean, that that's something that I, I beat my head against here at Tidelift on a semi-regular basis, right? Is this, uh, you know, when I got into, when we all got into open source in various ways, I mean, part of what makes open source uh, amazing, and in a previous episode, we uh, literally talked about the theme of joy in open source. Yeah. But so much of that derives from the human, right? And our it. norm in, in open source now is, oh, hey, we just use this package manager. And like, you've abstracted away, you've used the like undoubtedly useful, powerful, incredible abstraction of the package uh, that completely abstracts away the people on the other side of that thing. And you end up in these conversations that are like, well, I did the open source. And you're like, okay, but open source, is it people? Is it a, you know, is it NPM? And and things start getting very fuzzy and very, I think, you know, Adam, to your point, it, it suddenly becomes I'm, I'm the, the companion to, to factory yeah. is that it's open, infrastructure. Yeah, and Nobody likes is, their bridges. Open source is a perfect example of this. What does it take in the modern era for most people to believe they've open sourced something? And the answer is they made it public on GitHub. And, and that's not what it means to me and it's not what it means to you and it's not what it means to Kellen, but that's because we're old people. And what it means to them is that they click the button on GitHub and it was public and therefore it's open source. And it's okay that that's how that's evolved. It's all right that, that, that's, that that's sort of the, the way that it is. But under the hood there, 
is this is this struggle around how do we align our our the values that mattered in that experience and in that movement and impart that to people who are going to create another different new movement that, that may be an extension yep. of the existing movement of open source. Maybe it's an extension of the existing way we manage software development teams. Maybe it's an existing way of the way we think about structuring companies, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's something completely different. And, and in the same way that those like old guys at the knock did have interesting things to say, about how we could build monitoring systems that worked better for safety critical systems, right? Because that's what they were telling me. They were like, you can't run an ISP this way. Like, what if it fails? And I'm like, well, it's not a nuclear power plant, so it's probably okay. And um, whereas for them, if it failed, it's like not okay. You know, um, people die. It's bad news. And so it's, I think there's a, there's a part of what needs to happen here is this recognition that the, that the task at hand is partly to help that generation of people understand that that there is that they can just create the world they want that that yeah. that, that that that's all that we ever did and yep. right now it feels like it was this pre-existing that there's so much prior art and so much pre-existing layers and so much complicated stuff that you could never just invent something or just do it cuz you wanted to or do it cuz it was fun or maybe just do it because it's art. Like, I think software is art always. And like, that's why I like it. And sometimes I'm doing it because I want it. And like system initiative is this big complicated thing. I'm We're going to bring it into the world. I love the crap out of it. I have no idea if other people will. Not really. But I don't care. I love it. It's the album I wanted to make. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the song I wanted to sing. And like, I mean, you're, and, you're, and you're, you know, you just got to put it out into the world. And I think it's the same thing kind of across the board here, where if you look at like, why is the CEO upset that their team to Kellen's earlier supposition, like, why do they not feel good about their software teams? Well, fundamentally, it's because their expectations are misaligned about what the software teams are. And also the software teams have an unaligned mis expectation about what their CEOs want and don't want. And that mess, that, that, that lack of alignment leads to a natural lack of autonomy. And when we have a lack of alignment, then we tug on people to try and get them back into alignment. And if we're over here doing work and we feel like our leadership aren't aligned to the work that we're doing, then we feel like they don't understand us and they don't care about us. And none of those things matter. And fundamentally that's because we just, we've, we've over and over and over again, forgotten um, that those things are actually in our control. Anyway, not to rant too much. Oh, no. I mean, well, we're all, I mean, it, it's such a, it, I mean, none of these things are technical questions that have short answers, right? I'm not asking yeah. you. I'm, 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 I'm asking, I'm giving <laughs> You're asking you ranty we, questions. Yeah, yeah, right. I, we yeah. could I, all monologue on these things for a long time. Yeah. So no I, apologies. I, I, I hate to undermine the, like, it's the album I wanted to make because that spoke to my soul. But there was another point you made in there. Mm. that I want to go back to, which is the idea that people don't realize they can they can invent their own world. Yeah. And it, it's really funny when, I mean, I just, uh, you know, I tell people things like, you know, I have been writing software for three years and getting paid to do it before I use source control. I had been writing software for 12 years before I worked with my first PM. You know, I was probably mm. nine years before I'd ever used a bug tracker. Like, I mean, these things are just like, right. 
they just they happen like you know now you go and you're like well software is done this way and we've got obviously you have to have backlog. a bug tracker i mean because where else do you keep the prioritized backlog and i'm like i don't even really know quite what a prioritized backlog is but i'm going to pretend that i do because i've deleted I'm supposed it to know how to build software so yeah um but you know for for well over half of my career we didn't have these things um right. source control was was unequivocally good that was a that was good the rest of it we can talk about but source control solid but even um, then i think we've probably gone overboard with source control yeah probably like to be honest like there's a bunch of systems that we build right now infrastructure as code's a good one it's let's be blunt a lot of the problems in the user experience that come from doing infrastructure as code come from source control yeah. like we're seriously we're checking the 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 theoretical code that builds the state for the end thing in an API into source control because we're pretending it's a right reflection of what happened in the messy cloud provider we called through a SaaS API and that belonged in source control so we could put it into a continuous delivery pipeline. We basically said we wanted a fighter jet and built a submarine and then congratulated ourselves on how smart we were. It's insane. And like, I get it because I was there and I really advocated for it like yeah, a lot. Yeah. And like, you just so get. we're clear, I did this. I, like <laughs> I brought this unto you. I built the submarine and was like, this submarine's a fighter jet. And like, it wasn't a fighter jet. It was a submarine. And what a bummer to realize you did that. But my point is we don't have to live that way. We can just change yeah. our minds. Um, <laughs> all right, new rule, all guests over the age of 40 have to deliver at least one mea culpa per episode. That's the uh, at least one apology for that what they brought. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I'm sorry, cloud. I was. I, I'm I didn't so know. sorry about the tag clouds. Tag clouds oh. were a good idea at the time. <laughs> they really oh, were. Man. Yeah, tag clouds. Love, love a good tag fun. cloud. I, they did morph into hashtags, and so yeah. now we see them on billboards. So that's your. What's your apology though? Mine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, well, actually, it has a lot to do with what you two have just been talking about. Uh, which is, uh, I am the enforcement arm of the open source, uh, the legalist arm of open source, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I get called in to say, like, you have written the license that is outside of the bounds of the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to wag my finger at you extremely vigorously. And yeah, and I'm increasingly questioning that, right? I mean, I, I don't... Uh, I think that open as played by the, this box, right, has mm -hmm. allowed a lot of innovation at other layers of the stack. Right? Totally. We constrained one layer and that allowed us to do a lot of really cool things in other layers of the stack, which is, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, but I see these sort of next, I mean, I especially see this in uh, machine learning right now. There's a lot of, is this open? And, and to which I just want to scream, who cares? Like, go do <laughs> the thing, yeah. and then we'll figure out. And so I am certainly doing, I think, a bit of professional repentance right now of yeah. trying to figure out uh, how we, uh, you know, how to transmit the lessons that we learned that are the right lessons, how to not be a stickler about the wrong lessons, and how to tell the difference between those two, right? Because it's very yeah. easy to come in and say like, look, we learned it this way. We, we have the scars to prove it. Here they are. Uh, please don't do this. 
Well, and most people and, can be, it's really easy to terrify normal people by being a lawyer. Oh yeah. So well, like, it's an extremely powerful position to say, to wag your finger from, do you know what I mean? Uh, oh, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's not like a normal person wagging their finger. It's like, Oh, the lawyer is wagging their finger at me. Like I better. Yeah. Oh yeah. Better no, pay attention, I mean, which I'm... is good advice in general. If a lawyer wags their finger, you should listen. And also, yeah, though, I mean, I think it's, but not always. I mean, it, well, yeah, not always. <laughs> and the open source legal community is to its credit, mostly people who are sort of on the weird edge of lawyering, right? Totally. Like if you're an intellectual property lawyer and you're like intellectual property works really well, if you like are on the boring straight and narrow of being an intellectual yeah, yeah. property lawyer, open source law is not your thing. Right? Totally, so we totally, do att totally. tend to attract, but at the same time, we're all very risk averse yeah. and we get into this uh, situation where we're like, well, look, these rules that made sense 25 years ago when they were handed down to us on stone tablets. I mean, we tell the story that the open source initiative handed them down on stone tablets, but actually Debian handed them down on stone tablets. Right. And then and we things were lost them. in translation. Yeah. yeah so yeah. we rewrote them, but we didn't rewrite them enough. Yeah, and, totally. And, and, the, and the younger generations we have this bad habit of saying, no, 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 don't do You don't understand. Way. You don't understand. And like, sometimes that's right, right? Like sometimes yeah. in fact, there is a correct lesson to be passed along. And I yeah. think that's one of the things that is, I suspect both of you, I certainly, I struggle with, I suspect both of you yeah. struggle with, how do you identify which of the lessons you actually do want to pass down and which ones you're like, actually that one doesn't apply anymore or I'm not sure. So let me couch it. Let me, because sometimes yeah. you just, just want to save people pain. I, I, I think about it as there's this idea of like uh, of this concept of shuhari, which uh, is essentially like how it's basically just a way to talk about how you learn things and mm -hmm. how people master things. And uh, and in the first stage, uh, we learn things by doing what we're told the way we're told to do them very accurately. So, you know, uh, this is the way it is do it this way and the outputs will be the way you expect, right? Um, it, it, that's how it works when you're learning anything. You're learning to write and you're like, okay, well, make an A. And you're like, oh, that's a sloppy A, okay? Make the A less sloppy, you know? And if we sort of do that for a while, it's good. And then we get to a stage where we've we've exceeded, we don't need to do that anymore because we've we've got that part down enough. We've worked the system or the process enough that we we, we can just do it without thinking. And at that point, we we start to riff a little um right we start to like well but my a like now i have a style of a that isn't like what was in the book it's like how i make a's and 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 that works for me because the way i hold my hand or the way this thing happens and so it becomes more unique to you and it becomes more expressive of your own point of view and your own experience mixed in with the mastery of the basics and then you get to the last step, which is the basically transcending the rules of the original system because you have now recognized the limitations it puts upon you and you're inventing another one. So now now we're we're in the part where we're we're gonna create a new way of working or a new way of being or a new way of thinking or a new thing we're doing. And we're gonna apply, we're gonna take from our experience what we need, and we're gonna take what we learned in that part where we were riffing. And now we're going to create something that's that's altogether different or new. And we're at this moment where there's enough of the first part. There's so many things in the world you have to do that that learning curve to get to a spot where where you feel like you have mastery is really high. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And, and then when people start to riff at all, we wag our finger. We're like, Hey, don't riff. No riffing. Riffing is bad. No riffing. Um, again, software factories, consistency, um, you know, this is probably controversial, but like, I feel this way every time somebody wags their finger at me about how Python works. I'm like, why does Python work that way? And they go, cause that's how Python works. And it works that only one way. And I'm like, yeah, but isn't that a dumb way? And they're like, no. And I'm like, why not? And they're like, cause it's Python. And I'm like, okay, I, that is an unsatisfactory answer on every level, but fine. Um, I have the same problem with the boring technology movement. I'm like, I don't, and I know Kellen, I think is, has a different point of view about boring technology, but I I like the patron saint of, of boring yeah. technology. Right. Yep. Um, but it always feels very finger waggy to me. And, and so I think part of what needs to happen in order for us to get past all of this and to sort of get people re-engaged in, in, and feel better about what's happening and have better outcomes is to actually give each other a little more grace to, to stop finger wagging and start saying, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it would be better to write a license that means I can't be exploited if I work long hours in China. And maybe that should be a thing that we think is a good thing because as people, we think that's good and right. And maybe yeah. I don't care that it's not open source by the definition we came up with 20 years ago when that wasn't a problem and we didn't understand those things. And But maybe I still want them in my club, you know? Um, right. Well, and, and that's where we get back to these questions of, who's in the factory <laughs> who's who owns the factory who provides the capital i mean but that's a whole nother that's a that's a whole nother podcast but the people who actually, provide the capital don't care what they care about is a return on their capital do you don't yeah like, like no for real if you're winning if 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 you take money from venture capitalists and then you build a company and it works and you're winning Whatever you're doing, they're like, you're a genius. Keep doing that. And I, it doesn't I, I totally matter. agree with they Adam don't on care. this. Um, I actually, this is this goes back to the point of like why we are having this crisis now is that winning got harder. Winning got harder. And mm -hmm. exactly. When everybody was winning, it's all easy. It's like you're standing at a craps table. We're all up. But like, I don't know if anybody plays craps. This is probably a terrible analogy, but I love craps. <laughs> and one of the first times I learned to play craps, I was stuck building a data center in Las Vegas. And, uh, and so I spent my time learning to play craps cause I had to do something cause I was miserable that I was stuck there. And I was one of those people who hated Las Vegas. And I was like, I can't stay here and hate this place for this long. Like I have to like find a way to love it. And so I did. And so I was playing, I was, I was like day three of learning how to play craps. And we had this, it was late and with MGM grand, I swear the story will end. And there was this woman from um very very wealthy she was wearing like a beautiful white dress she's probably 70 <laughs> and she was wearing like a white dress and she was covered in jewels and diamonds and i was playing like very conservative craps i was like just pass line and odds best bet in the casino really straightforward this woman was throwing money at all sorts of crazy she was like the dice are gonna come up eights the hard way which is just fours right and she would just put all her she would put ten thousand dollars on the hard ways right and so this whole table was winning, but she probably lost 200 grand in like 20 minutes. And, but when the table turned, everybody left, you know, eventually the table turn on, turns on you, winning gets harder. The analogy's lost. I can tell, but the, yeah, the point is, Adam. I know, but the point is that like that when it turns, it does get harder. And when it gets harder, that's when the scrutiny arrives. And 
And it's not because it was right before and bad now. It was wrong then too. It just didn't matter because the strength of your winning overcome it. Um, a, a pithy way to say it is that that winning buys culture. Have whatever culture you want if you're winning. Um, are you losing? Every motherfucker is going to have an opinion about your culture. Well, I, I so I, we're 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 running short on time here. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that what are the things you guys are optimistic about, right? We've spent 45 minutes talking about crisis and negativity. Is there anything, I mean, Adam, you've got, and you've got a thing you're obviously very excited about. Feel free to use this time to talk about system initiative, or if there's other things in the, in the industry or the tools or the culture that you're excited about. I mean, look, I'm optimistic about the whole thing. I, I actually really believe that we can change the way that we relate to how we build these things. Uh, and the way we relate to these people by talking about them as teams, by talking about them yeah. more as the professionals that we are who have to collaborate together because those things create better outcomes. Those things aren't right on their own. That's how you win. And so in an environment where winning is scarce, the winners are the ones who do that best, which will then yep. cause other people to look at them and go, what are they doing? And the answer is working hard together as teams, learning and growing in high trust environments with high safety and tight alignment between leadership and, uh, and execution. And cause that's what winning does. That's how you win. That's always how you win. It was how you won. It's, it's how we won when whatever Caesar conquered the Gauls and it's how you win. Now building soft was a weird analogy. Like I went from craps to Caesar, but like, um, but like, but that's that's I'm optimistic because I actually that's what's going to happen and uh, and 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 the folks who are really bad at it are going to lose um, because that's what happens um, and, and that actually I think is that second part hundred percent what Adam said I'm actually also really optimistic you know one of the things going around looking at it was realizing that in many ways we are much better at this than we used to be. And it's just that winning mm -hmm. got harder. It's also that we failed to teach the next generation, but mostly it's that winning got harder. And also there was a period when no one was keeping score. And so you could yes. lie about whether or not you were winning. And a Absolutely. lot of bad shit happened during that period. And now we're keeping score again. And I actually think it's a really powerful time to get better at building software because I think it matters how we build software because software is so impactful in the world. And the values that you bring to building software get manifested in how that software impacts the world. And so 100%. I actually think we are in a unique opportunity to move those values forward again. I'm really excited we, about it. We told, in a way that we could not before, because before yeah. you could hide under yeah. just everybody was winning. And yeah. like, and you know, it sucks that that's that way. Cause it, but, but also I think it's necessary. And I think it, I, I think it also is going to allow that next wave of, of change because because the people who can do that and can teach other people to do it and can, and can then bring those things into the world they will build the tools that will change the behavior of people who don't understand as much how to do it from scratch and that's the thing about using tools is that they they create your culture like the 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 culture is the expression of what you do it's not what you say it's what you do and so if 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 you can find things that were built the way Kellen just described by those teams that are high performing, the software then tends to reinforce 
the behaviors that led to high performance. They can't do all of it because some of it's human and it's not the thing, but, but it can help. And once it starts, it, it compounds because the other decisions become more obvious. I mean, I, boy, I want to, again, we could do a whole nother podcast and indeed I had hoped to get into it, but it's just the other conversation about this relationship of tools and culture, because I do think you know, we touched on it a little bit, right. By talking about revision control and how we don't have, how, when you're, when you start, when, when you have the revision control hammer and everything is a nail, it does impact how you collaborate. But Here, um, here's one. Well, actually, I feel like if we're going to talk about tools and culture, I can't let this go without saying this. Do it. GitHub is built for open source and it's built for open source by a person who didn't like his contributors very much. Well, Git by a person who didn't like his contributors very much and GitHub takes that and it puts at the heart of all of our software teams, a deep distrust and hatred of our coworkers. Yeah. And it's a terrible, terrible tool that makes us, breaks us down as, as people who trust each other and want to work together. Amen. Wow. Wow. Well, that, that is a, right, uh, right next a to backlogs, bomb. right <laughs> next to backlogs. <laughs> it's right next to backlogs in terms of the toxic shit we do to each other. Oh boy. I, I got a, it, Jamie Zawinski called me a, uh, uh, attention deficit teenager once, uh, cause I deleted a backlog. That is a story for another day. It's been awesome having you both. We will, uh, definitely do this again sometime. Thank you and uh, best of luck to you, uh, Kellen, in your new role. And Adam, whenever your launch comes, uh, I hope it's an awesome and successful one. I have no doubt it will be. Uh, so thank you both. Thanks thank so you. much. This was fun. So fun.